Let's do it. Scuba Obsessed Weekly Podcast, we talk about all things scuba diving, from cool new gear to places a dive and scuba the news. Scuba Obsessed episode 472 is recorded live November 19th, 2020. Welcome back to Scoob Obsessed. I'm Darren Jilson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan. We've had a little bit of wind coming up here. Recently joining me this week, we have Mac, the dive mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? Well, I'm doing very well. And like you said, considering we had three days ago, I had white out in my yard when I woke up. Oh, All we'll that, that heavy, heavy frost. And the day was 62, 63. But like you oh, said, yeah. windy. It's been gusting in the average of 25 to, uh, well, earlier in the week, it was almost 40, which made the Lake Michigan gales of November very appropriate. Yes. Yeah, you, you begin to see how uh, you could lose quite a few ships in the same day when you get some of the gusting wind. Especially in the olden days. Yeah, I've, I uh, had a tarp on the roof of the barn. I got some roof repair that I need to do and didn't make it before winter. and. Uh, the tarp didn't make it. I'm going to have to put another one up. And uh, I actually had, you know, boards down the tarp and then boards on top of it. And it must have just uh, shredded it right along the edge of the boards there. Yeah, it's, yeah, it gets to be a little windy. That's a, a yeah, I, I don't mind storms and rain and just about anything else, but I'm not a fan of the gusting winds. Well, I was going to go flying the other day and it- it's always in the morning if you go, it's much, much better. But by the time I get my ass out of, you know, in gear, it's afternoon. I had to replace the battery in there anyway. And I got out there and it's like, well, that says only 11 gusting 24 down the runway. All right. So I taxi down taxiway. And it's like, yeah, that wind's coming totally 180 out from what it said. So I taxied <laughs> way down. I, I did it. I wanted to warm the engine up anyway. So I, I taxied the whole mile all the way down the opposite end. And I'm fighting to keep the son of a gun on the ground oh. going straight. <laughs> and it's like, okay, that told me I'm not going to go fight it. So I turned around at the end, came on back and parked that sucker. It was that gusty. It was not a fun time. And it's one of those days I'd much rather be on the ground than up there. Wishing so, so the, uh, the, you're getting a little extra lift when you don't want it. Well, if I'm just taxiing sideways, just going down on the ground, and it's it's wanting to make me run off the runway, I don't like that too much. No, no, I don't blame you at all. Yeah, I'm. I'd like to thank everybody who. Yeah, I'd like to thank everybody who's in the chat room. We have Dave, Derek, and Eric joining us. So thank you very much and. What we're going to do is jump right into the news, get that going. Uh, and this is an article that I didn't have in the show notes. I was just kind of came up in my mind. I wonder how that Golden Ray project's going. And they do have a little update. They said the crew working the cut and lift sections of the capsized car carrier Golden Ray in St. George or Georgia's St. Simmons Sounds had resumed salvage after 
efforts after suspending operations ahead of tropical storm that traveled up the southern U.S. east coast last week. The team resumed operations to cut the first vessel section using a specialized heavy lift crane, uh, VB-10,000, on Monday after the storm had passed. And responders redeployed protective boom at the environmental protection barrier, the EPB, surrounding the wreck site and at sensitive areas around St. Simmons Sounds that was removed prior to the tropical storm. During a pause in cutting, responders were able to make modifications to the cutting apparatus to improve its performance. In the way of the storm, travelers recovered small pieces of plastic debris at the shoreline last week and continue to scan for debris on the water and at the shoreline daily. We have implemented multiple layers of defense and protective Protectively positioned equipment to mitigate potential threats to the environment, our recovery and assessment personnel are actively monitoring the water and shoreline. We expect some debris will escape the EPB and encourage the community to notify us immediately if they encounter any de- debris on the shoreline or in the water using the phone number provided. The pause of the latest in the string of setbacks are one of the most complex salvage operations in U.S. history. Teams have already encountered delays related to the difficult environmental conditions. COVID outbreak uh, among the crew, mooring system adjustments, and broken cutting chain. So I don't think I had heard about the broken cutting chain. Had you, Mac? About. Not a bit. Yeah. No, well, I was kind of surprised because they made a big deal that once they started cutting, they couldn't stop. But it sounded like they stopped. But I guess if it breaks. Yeah, but you're, then you're... They haven't said anything about the noise level, too. Remember? They said that was going to be a yeah. monstrous noise for a minimum, what, 24 hours mm-hmm. straight as they're cutting. Yeah. yeah, this particular article didn't have much, any uh, details on that, but uh, yeah, so it's it sounds like it's progressing. I'd like to see the pictures when they start pulling that parts up. Yeah, yeah what they're, they're showing here is they they got a, a guy stick welding on some sort of pulley. Hmm. Must be maybe a guide or a block uh, being used with that chain there, or it could be stock photo. It says photo St. Simmons Sound Incident Unified Command, and that is not what the, the photo is showing. Uh, Ponzi scheme. This is the next article up. Uh, suspect uses underwater scooter to flee the FBI. Well, I've heard of a scooter used for quite a few things, but uh, FBI avoidance isn't normally one of them. You know, normally if we hear any illegal activity involving a scooter. It's usually drug smuggling. It says when authorities went to arrest Matthew Piercy on Monday, they said what they said was his role in running a $35 million Ponzi scheme. He took off in his truck, led them to Shasta Lake, uh, the largest man-made reservoir in California, tracked by air and trailed by FBI agents and members of the California Highway Patrol. Mr. Piercy, 44, Apollo Cedro, California, was seen removing something from his truck Entering the frigid water in his street clothes, the authorities said, after 25 minutes in the lake, part of which he spent submerged, a very cold and wet Mr. Piercy emerged and was arrested, the Justice Department said. The agents allowed him to change into dry clothes that they had obtained from his wife before escorting him to the nearest FBI op- field office in Sacramento. Mr. Piercy's red Yamaha 350LI, an underwater sea scooter, was taken as evidence, the authorities said. Commercially available, the the battery-powered scooter has an enclosed propeller that can pull a diver underwater at just under four miles an hour, much faster than humans can move with fins. 
It was not clear how long Mr. Piercy was underwater. Neither the FBI nor the Justice Department answered questions about whether he used a snorkel or any other kind of scuba gear to stay submerged. Justice Department noted in the detention memorandum, however, that Mr. Piercy spent some time out of the site underwater where law enforcement could only see bubbles. Mr. Piercy is accused of a federal indictment in running a Ponzi scheme that bilked investors out of about $35 million between 2016 earlier this year when two companies he helped run, Family Wealth Legacy and Zola Financial. Family Wealth Legacy solicited investments in securities, cryptocurrency mining, and life insurance. Uh, he raised funds through transactions that were typically styled as loans offering a fixed return with the company's return purportedly generating through a log rhythmic trading. Piercy often paid off his lines of credit, credit cards, personal business expenses with investor funds, and his companies did not generate revenue sufficient to cover the overhead and expenses while still paying investors the return they were promised or otherwise led to expect. Justice Department said Mr. Piercy had a pattern of paying old investors the money he raised from new investors while making various false and misleading statements, half-truths, and omissions to hide his constant downward financial spiral. He faces 31 felony counts, including wire fraud, mail fraud, witness tampering, money laundering. Each count carries a maximum penalty of 20 years in prison. Uh, and then they list some other people who are also being charged. But, uh, eh, new use for a scooter. Well, you know, what are you going to do? You're going to go to a lake that's uh, landlocked, and you're going to go yes. underwater with an air tank. You know, if he'd have been thinking about this, he could have had an escape mechanism in his truck. One, would have given him a dry sub so he wouldn't freeze his butt. Two, he could go for a longer distance and then get to the shore, breathe off a snorkel, and after a day or two, they're going to think he's dead, come at yeah. night and then scoot. Yeah. I mean, there's so many options, especially if he did, what, millions? Oh, come on. He can make butter in a $300 scooter. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't know if this was really all that well planned out. But it said he went in with street clothes. It makes me wonder, did he have stuff staged or did he just like grab a, a bailout in the scooter and put around? I mean, it, I, it doesn't say if he had much notice that this was coming, but, uh, yeah, yeah you could do better. We'll, we'll give him a D he, D minus. Yeah. yeah I, I, D minus. <laughs> he failed. Yeah. They caught him. Yeah. They? That's a failure. Well, <laughs> well, he he really had no chance of escaping. I mean, the helicopter, you know, you can outrun many things, but you can't outrun the radio, and a helicopter is going to be another tough one. You better yeah. know where there's a tunnel or something. Cause, uh, it's, yeah, 12, 25 minutes in a very cold lake. Come on. Yeah. He's, like, he's just glad he didn't have hypothermia and die. You should have waited for a month when you have all those Christmas Santas in the water. Then you could just throw on a red, you know, Santa's Claus suit and they'd get you confused. Yes, absolutely. Let's see, it's what's still, the next one that we've... Like you said, wonder how much notice you had. Yeah, it Your didn't seem to be all that well planned out. Yeah, not if he just jumped into his pickup truck and ran away. He had to think they were coming for him. So yeah, then the, okay. So that this next one is the, let's see, did I get that one queued up? Scuba diver stays underwater for six days to set new world record while staying underwater for long periods is undoubtedly not the cup of tea for everyone. 
but the most experienced scuba divers, a scuba diver from Egypt, submerged himself in the Red Sea for over 145 hours or six days in an attempt to set a new world record. According to Egyptian independent uh, Sadami al Kile succeeded in breaking the world record for the longest dive after he stayed underwater for six days. Starting on November 5th, a short clip of the 29-year-old attempt has gone viral on social media. Diver who spent exactly 145 hours and 30 minutes underwater in the Red Sea off the uh, Dahab coast was accompanied by rotating assistant medical teams, the website added. Since Thursday, which was 5-11-20, Egyptian submarine Saddam Kalni, an Egyptian record holder for the longest dip underwater, but taking the longest dip in human history for more than 150 hours, and it was his last dip he made since three years ago and lasted 100 hours and 20 minutes, according to the Post. According to the news website, hundreds of residents, tourists, and diving groups waited for him to come out of the sea to congratulate him and celebrate his feet. Earlier in September, the scuba diver made headlines after he held an engagement ceremony underwater. So it looks like he's got a frame with bungee cords. Is that just to keep him from floating away? I'm taking it. That's going to be a sleeping, you know, he, he had to sleep. Oh yeah. You're not going to stay there. You know, that's, that's, I was trying to find some other items on it too. Well, and it doesn't look like he, up. yeah, it, it doesn't look like he's in a full face mask. No, that's what I was curious about is how do you not, how do you sleep like that? I'm afraid I would spit it out or something. Yeah. I mean, it looks like he's got quite a few people around him and, and watching him. I was trying to look here. I'm just curious, one, how he didn't have hypothermia. And usually, oh, did you ever see the picture of the wedding? I didn't look at the wedding, no. I'm posting that in there real quick. I think I did. That's the wedding photo. There you go. And you saw them above it. I will never yeah. give up. <laughs> <laughs> but none of the articles had a lot more detail, and that's what I was sort of curious about. One would have thought you'd have some different pictures. That's what I was hoping for. Yeah. I'm going to look one more site just in case I can get something different. Short snippets, what they really like, I think. Nope, that wouldn't need an open for me. Well, it looks what like he was doing some video posts. So, yeah, what does it look like there when he's in the carriage or in that bungee cord bed? What is that in front, down in the bottom? Looks like he's got one or two tanks. One's upside down. One's topside. Yes. Looks like a spare mask hanging from the rail. What's all this yep. stuff at the bottom? Well, there's some concrete blocks. So I'm I'm imagining that this is a welded frame. So they needed the concrete blocks to kind of hold it down. Uh, it seems to be there's like a rope around it. I can't it tell. like a chain, though, doesn't it? Yeah, rope or chain in that area. It doesn't yeah. say how deep he was either. And I was curious, even at 20 feet, what's your bottom time for deco? Well, You're I talking think I'm at... now. Come on. <laughs> well... Well, 20 feet, isn't that in the charts almost infinite? I'm trying to remember. I, I don't have a chart right here. Uh, but uh, we covered it before in the past where somebody was trying to set the duration record 
uh, and they had to go into a chamber immediately afterwards. And then they, he would, they were also having problems with like the skin, uh, yeah. the, the skin like change, you know, it, it absorbs so much water that it almost became like tissue paper. So there was all sorts of odd combinations in that particular article. They were talking about food. Uh, the guy had food that was in a paste, but he, he wanted stuff to where he didn't need to relieve himself in certain ways. So that was part of how his diet was in a very important way. I just gave you another link to a different item. It's got some better pictures. Uh, They're stills, but it it shows other guys. And I'm looking at the depth, and it looks at least 20 feet. Well, you can almost see the bubbles hitting the surface. So it wouldn't be much less or more than 20 feet. Because if you look where the, it looks like there's a girl or somebody waving at the camera. Um, you can see the surface right there behind her. Well, I'm looking at some other pictures of the guy, and the, some of the guys attending him have full face on, full face mask. Hmm. That's hardcore with a mask on and no, no. Uh, I, I think I'd definitely want to have a full face. Yeah, I mean, he, uh, he maybe he had a necklace just to kind of help retain that in there. I'm still surprised it didn't give me the depth. All those variables like we like to know is what's the water temperature? How deep was he? Yeah. Yeah. All all the things that every diver asks. Yeah. But no newspaper reporter will ever think of. Well, they'll say, well, his oxygen tank. They'll always say Oxygen tank. (laughs) (laughs) Let's see this next one. Do I have this one queued up? I don't. Oh, I probably did. Dive to an underwater wine cellar and handpick your own bottle in Croatia. An underwater wine cellar in Croatia may be the last thing you'd expect to find while scuba diving among uh, the peninsula, but such a unique aging process employed by Adivo Vina, the classic scene of a family-owned winery perched on the Adriatic coast, sucking the cooling breeze for uh, climate perfection is a twist and taken to an unusual extreme by the boutique winery, which is located near the small town uh, resort town of Drace, about an hour's drive from Dubrovnik or something like that. Better you than me. Yeah. And I, I do this to myself every time at Vino Vino winery land based, despite its intensive technique, is but one of many multi-generational vineyards peppered across the rugged peninsula sitting in a region most famed among locals for its bountiful trawl of mussels, fish, and oysters. Adding wine to the scope of marine produce may seem strange, but the team doesn't seem to think so. Masterminded by Edie Bajeran, who co-founded Edvino Vina with Ivo and Anto Segovic, the idea of aging wine underwater is sparked by pure speculation. Uh, they theorize that aging wine 20 meters underwater would be better for consistency and temperature, keeping the wines consistent while they form their unique character. Second, he assumed the pin drop silence in the seabed would help wines cultivate demonstrably smoother profile. It took some experimenting, but eventually uh, zoned in on the correct way to handle these submerged wines. Initially, the team would use ordinary corks 
to seal large clay vessels known as amphora, thought to protect the wine bottles from the surrounding sea. That didn't work. Instead, it forced the team to get creative with the vessel. Trial and error led them to, to coat corks in two layers of wax and aging the bottles in clay before submerging them upside down in locked, custom-built cages at a depth of 18 to 25 meters. Winemaking, of course, begins above ground in the winery. Um, uh, the grapes are crushed and made into wine before being aged three months. They're then taken to sea and submerged, forming a limited edition collection called Navis Mysterium, roughly translated the Sea Mystery. After 18 to 24 months, the wine emerges with a distinct pine wood aroma, looking much like an undiscovered treasure, the imposing clay encased with glistening with a sea patina. Flecked with seashells and barnacles, the wine itself is described as having a strong fruity and spicy notes. Wines can be purchased in the original bottles from the actual winery, but those wanting the prized dropped in its original amphora can expect to fork out anything up to $400 US. Now, if you got the bills, that amphora is pretty cool. That I was looking at that because at first I just focused on the bottle there. I'm like, ah, I want the amphora, but yeah, that is that is definitely a cool thing to do. So how would you get the bottle out of that amphora without breaking the amphora? Hmm. Maybe it's one of those things like they don't expect anybody to drink it. Well, if they're tasting it, and if I'm going to spend four hundred bucks, <laughs> I think I might want a sip of it. Yeah, maybe, maybe they do like what they what uh, some people do the champagne where they. Uh, was it they saber it and you know, cut the end off? Oh, I don't know. That's yeah. pretty cool, though. But, but they, they did say they, they double wax the cork, so maybe just kind of cut the, the wax off the cork and you're able to extract it that way. But that does look cool. We wouldn't get quite the same patina unless you want, you, you thought of uh, quaggas <laughs> as the <laughs> equivalent. You think we could make, yeah. we, we, we got to sell that as a feature. This is something that I had talked about doing a long time ago. I'd even contacted some wineries and distillers and, uh, yeah, everybody was interested, but you know, that's the, the constraint isn't selling the alcohol. I mean, it's just the whole nature of the business and being profitable and everything else. So unless you're going to be able to make them more money, uh, or something, it just really didn't translate that well into right. something practical, cool idea. Um, uh, I still may do it. Maybe we'll do it one of these years is that the uh, journeyman's uh, has smaller casts and you can have, uh, you know, custom distilled liquors, rums, vodkas. Uh, I think they also do some brandies. You have those in the barrel. And I thought that would be cool to put it out there for a season. Let's see. uh, Dima. Wow. Talk about things that are having a rough year. You know, any sorts of uh, shows. Um, So Dima show, they have a 2020 roundup, the diving equipment and marketing association annual event due to be held in new Orleans this year was just one of many large scale conventions that fell victim to the COVID-19 pandemic. DEMA bounced back with a brand new virtual event that aims to provide diving industries some of the same opportunities to connect, learn, and grow. The online show uh, extended virtual education series, which ran from the 15th of September, will continue to the end of November. But all this week, there will be a virtual trade show and networking event where 
Uh, we have much to, we have come to expect at the DEMA show proper, including opportunities to work with exhibitors, DEMA sponsored educational sessions, exhibitor sponsored educational sessions, new product showcase, 2020 DEMA member meeting and update 2020 diver community champion presentation, wave maker award presentation, and much more. Uh, DEMAshow.com is where you can register and wander the virtual halls. And this was uh, reported in scubadivermag.com. Some of the equipment they got listed on there, and I'm assuming that this is from the show. Uh, Ziegle announced a new Halo BCD, the world's first jacket size BCD that utilizes Ziegle's patented ripcord weight system, as well as a personal fit system and a shoulder for easy custom shoulder replacement. Uh, it's made from 1,000 denier uh, urethane bladder material, while the pocket shoulders harness and cumberman are all a mix of 1680D heavy-duty 420PU material. The ripcord system can hold 20 pounds of dumpable lead and 10 pounds of non-dumpable lead. Uh, seven stainless steel D-rings are strategically placed, and there are two easy-access uh, pockets. So let's see if that... They got an image over there, but it's kind of a little bit hard to see. Is there, yeah, is there something eight, unique? For $800, I'm looking at it. I went to their site just for the hell of it. And I'm, uh -huh. I, I don't see that much difference in the old ones. Well, that's what I was wondering. They, they mentioned all the features, it. and I'm like, uh, you know, mine, my Zeagle has that ripcord I'm uh, at the system. Right there by it. And it looks just like it. There got to be some some small differences, but man, I don't see what it is. Yeah. And for eight hundred dollars. Yeah, I mean it's that's about what they run. I mean, I I haven't paid for that because I I usually buy them used. But uh, you know, that, that, yeah, I, I like the Eagle. That's on that's on my uh, approved list. Well, I like Eagles, but I'm looking at the prices here from. Uh, that's here. They have the the Scout is three hundred and sixty dollars. The Xena is six hundred. The embroidery paneled, personal one, uh, at seventy four dollars a panel. The Stiletto is six forty. The Ranger LTD, which is the one I like, that's a thousand dollars. Wow. The Rangers have always been a very popular one. The Marina, the Bravo, they're all 525. And I don't, I looking at the picture, I do not see a significant delta, you know, change. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Not that I wouldn't take a free one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They could, they could send, uh, you know, three or four of them our way and we'd, we'd take a peek at them. Uh, Scuba Pro is showing a raft of new products, but many we have seen reviewed already, including the D Mask. D420 regulator, the Hydros X, but brand new MK19 Evo BTG260 carbon BT regulator system. Now that's a mouthful. Uh, yeah. Ultimate lightweight regulator design features Scuba Pro's new ev environmentally sealed balanced diaphragm first stage. The MK19 Evo BT finished in a special ultra durable black tech coating along with an upgraded Subversion Scuba Pro most popular tech diving second stage, the G260 featuring lightweight, ultra-tough carbon fiber front cover. There was also a range of new S-Tech diving harnesses, donut wings, reels, spools, 
trim weight kit sets and more. Is that the four? They, they talk about uh, the two sixty, and then they talked about the S Tech harness, but they didn't say which one that one was. Oh, the D four twenty, including the there's the D mass D four twenty regulator and the Hydrosax. So they they had three or four products they were mentioning all right there in a row. Um, well, I'm looking at their average price for any of their carbon BT regulators uh, on eBay and up go from uh, $699 to $1,039. And is that for a first and a second stage or just a well, second stage? See the Scuba Pro 20, Mark 25 Evo. And that is from at eBay. That's the regulator and uh, first stage. Mm-hmm. Okay. And just looking at several, several items. I'm just curious now, how much difference year to year in performance do you think that really does or they really generate? I mean, when, when you get a regulator, what are you looking for? Well, I want reliability. All right. Number one. Uh, yeah. You want, uh, you know, what is its rating for us? We, we need a cold weather reg, a cold water reg. So we, we make sure it's rated for the, the conditions that we're going in. You know, I guess that's a little bit of an extension along reliability. Um, you also want to check, is it, can it be serviced? You know, you, you, you know, buying something online, um, especially a scuba pro, I don't, I mean, that's gotta be gray market if it's a, an eBay special, uh, you know, our closest scuba pro dealer is going to be about El uh, Elkhart, I think, uh, is the closest one we have for that. Um, How many people do you know who, who who are diving buy new regulators with any new frequency or with any frequency at all? I mean, I've got mine forever. I usually maintain them. And the only ones I really make sure that I have tuned up professionally are my Poseidons. Yeah. And I've had those um, 20 years. Yeah. Um, I. I mean, my regulators, I bought new uh, probably 10 years ago. It might be even older than that. But, I mean, if, if you're servicing them and you treat them nice, they, they tend to last long. Mine's, mine's probably due to to go in and have some stuff replaced just based on age, you know, even though they're working fine and are tuned well. Uh, you know, there's going to be some point when the, the plastic and rubber gaskets and things just as a precaution should probably be changed out. Well, you know, when I see these items like the regulators and or a tank and a BC, I'm really curious of all the divers, not newbies, but the divers, how often do they really rotate through their gear like this? I understand specialty for deep water, really cold, abusive diving, but the majority of divers are not that. No. They're not hard no, to the most divers, I bet if they get twelve dives in a year, that's a lot of dives. Yeah. The the people for new gear like this is, you know, I hate using the word show offs, but that's that's kind of what it is. They're the you know, maybe maybe a, a younger person who uh you know, they get into a hobby and they wanna kind of go all out and they and they're willing to either borrow the money for it or they've Got a because if you go and buy, you know, so say you you got that the top of the line Zegel up above, so you got your BCD, 
you then went and bought your top of the line scuba pro gear. Uh, you know, we haven't talked about a wetsuit or a computer yet, but you're going to do dry suit. You're going to get your octopus. You're going to have a computer. That's the new yep. main. You're talking yep. five grand. Oh yeah, you could. Yeah. Not, and now, and people listening to the show for the first time, don't scare yourself. You don't need to spend five grand, but you can, if you buy all brand new and you get drawn into the, which one's shinier, which one's got the extra bells and whistles. Uh, don't don't we as divers, when we're participating and, and working with new new divers, don't we recommend get quality used stuff first to find out what you like? Because how many times have you seen somebody buy a brand new BC, gets it on and does three dives and says, this doesn't feel right. Now he's got to use guy, yeah. you know, he's got to use piece of equipment. Do, yeah, when we right. dive with people, don't we recommend borrowing something, renting something, see what you like before yeah. you buy? Yeah, I'm a big fan of uh, at least the dive shops around here. You know, they're going to make you buy your masks, your fins, your snorkel uh, when you went through the class. But nearly everything else you can rent. Right. And, and the, most of the classes we work with, they have a various types of regulators and or, I shouldn't say that, some establishments use the same type of regulator in BC for all their students. But if you have a yeah. shop and you're using rental gear, you're going to have a variety. And we've always taught them, try a different BC every time you dive to see which one you think felt better to you. Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be where the D-rings, where the attachments, how do you work the inflators, how do you work the dump valves, how does it just fit? Yes. Yeah, can can you adjust it? You know, is there an adjustment to get the strap? Do you like, you know, do you like the, uh, the quick release snap where you can swing your arm out of it real real fast some people some diving techniques you you don't want that you you do, want to have to loosen need, it up in my case do you need a belly band extender <laughs> yeah. well if i i can buy a, a bcd and not need uh, you're you're certainly fine uh but yeah that's that's it uh, don't, don't feel obligated and and you know one of the tips is if you are uh, diving with a shop and running gear towards the, the end of the season um a lot of shops will want to, you know, they may want to cut down in some of that rental gear. Oh, absolutely. Uh, so they have new for the next spring. So, you know, make them an offer, say, Hey, you know, I've rented this a couple of times. Uh, you know, what do you say? You know, and, and you should be able to get a pretty decent rate on some of that used rental gear. I mean, that's what my, my first gear. Now the, I think the wetsuit I did buy new, I did, I rented a regulator and uh, tanks for about the first year. But then eventually uh, bought my own, and that was that was new. The other thing in the club, though, like us, we've got tons of tanks. We have no problem loaning out equipment. Join a club. Yeah. Yep. You know, get your cert, join a club, got your mask, fin, snorkel. You can rent, like you said, you can rent a, a, a wetsuit, especially during the summer. Do the shallow water stuff to get comfortable with diving and try different gear. I was just looking at the BC. The biggest thing I look in my BC anymore is uh, my weight system. What kind of weights do I have? How do I get rid of them? Or how do I make sure I don't accidentally dump them? That kind of stuff is important to me. And I was just looking at this one. That's pretty neat. I like, And I like that one-pull system like the Eagle does. One yank mm -hmm. and it's gone. Yep. Yeah. 
Now, looking through, they have. They, we, we won't go through all the other items that they had listed here. This is Scuba Diver Magazine. Um, you know, the, these are probably paid. You know, there's some because uh, uh, you, know, you, you don't get mentioned from them necessarily for free. So I'm sure there was a little bit of uh, sponsorship to be put into this list. I have a question for you now. Mm-hmm. Do you have a dive computer? Yes. Do you need it for what you normally do in the river no, and no. in the inland lakes? And I'll in fact, you. I haven't dove with that dive computer for three seasons. Is your battery out? And <laughs> yes, my battery is out. Well, and uh, the last couple times, I the previous two seasons I had used it. You know, I I took it all apart. I I cleaned it up, but uh, I got. You know, and I even replaced the seal, siliconed it up, but it just in certain conditions would leak just a little bit. And that was enough to start to corrode uh, the inside of the battery case. So uh, I wonder if I would be different if I were doing ocean diving, if I would use a computer. But anymore, it's depth and time. And you know what you got. Yeah. If, if you're doing simple plans i mean even with the computer you should you should plan them out on paper um you know you do a simple plan if you're doing two dives uh where where the, i think the dive computers really come into play is if you're if you're doing multi-level dives where you're going to be uh, you know going deep and then maybe slowly coming up along a shelf uh, you'll get time back you'll you'll be able to get more bottom time with the computer because it's going to be able to calculate more than what you can in the table. In the table, you've got to be a little more conservative because you don't know exactly how many seconds you were at each depth. Well, you can always, uh, so be that's nice. You can always be conservative on your computer too. Yeah. It's like I would use the air table, even if I'm using nitrox to give me yes. that extra little boost because I'm an older diver and I, I want an edge. And even though some say it's psychosomatic or whatever, I feel better when I use nitrox. And the only time I use my computer as my backup, I use timer, depth gauge, and uh, air consumption when I'm diving wrecks. And that's always up north. Yeah. Uh, the, the other thing that's nice with a dive computer is, the, is logging. You now you can have the uh, dive computer. You come in from your two or three dives, you plug it into your laptop, or some of them are now even connecting to the mobile devices. And now you've got all the detail information about that dive, you know, date, time, and then you can fill in a few notes, you know, talk That's about a lazy man. lazy man. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm for lazy. I advocate <laughs> the lazy. How many you know, people you... do really keep their dive logs? Oh, I, <laughs> I have got so many full ones. I haven't used, I haven't really oh. made an entry in a dive log for years. Oh, I, I've, I've tried dive logs. It's it's dive logs is to me is just a step ahead of a diary or journal. I've never been able to do either. You know, I, I have the best intentions. I think it's good and I just lose interest. So my dive logging is usually preemptive. If, you know, if I wanted to go to a resort or do some more technical dives, uh, on a on a travel vacation, and I think I may be called out like, "Hey, I'm not going to let you do that." You know, 120 foot dive on a wreck. 
if I haven't seen that, you've done some diving. So uh, in anticipation of that, I would probably start doing a, uh, a log so that when that happened, I, I would be ready. But Yeah, or uh, you borrow somebody else's computer has got those on it and say, oh, this is what I had last time. <laughs> yeah. People have been known to do that. <clears throat> yeah. Not me, though. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, uh, I mean, there's, there's a lot of valuable information if you're doing a good, you can look back for me where the value would probably be. There's just waiting, you know, every environment I wait a little different. I wait a little, uh, you know, later in the season in the wetsuit out in the big lakes can be different than the dry suits can be different than the wetsuit or the dry suit in the river. So that's really where a log kind of comes in handy. It's like, well, how, how many pounds did I have at the end of the log? How did I think my buoyancy was? So that's where, you know, I, I really should be doing it more, but, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm guilty of not, uh, having a dive log all the time. I, I seldom do. If you're going to be diving the river, you know, you're going to be less than 25 feet. You're going to be out there a minimum of one to two tanks. So hour and 10 to two hours and 10, depending on what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And Actually, I keep my record because I wind up doing postings on the club site or one of the sites of what we found. So I can go back and find my, I don't know, you know, air consumption. <laughs> That's a total 80 is what it took me. You know, we always say, well, yeah. it was rainy or it, was, it wasn't rainy. Visibility, temperature, everything you put in the log, we talk about. Yeah. So we cheat, well, we, and, use, and we use the internet. The podcast is my dive log. <laughs> if, I, if I didn't talk about it on here, it probably didn't happen. Or we found 40, 40 pounds of gold, and we're not telling you anyway. Oh, I know what I was going to say. Uh, I was looking. Do you get the, the surf shop around here? You get their emails, or are you on that? No, so, I'm not. Oh, they had a sale last week on their all, what is it? eco-friendly wetsuits they're all made out of not they're recycled plastic and the common one here is five mil and seven for the guys who were out there last week but uh, i i've i looked at the pictures and stuff they look pretty cool they said the elastic in it the elasticity is great and they like on a normal dive suit you know, they actually, my understanding is you get a hundred dives out of a new suit if mm -hmm. you're active. The reason they last you 10 years is because you didn't do but 10 a year, maybe. <laughs> and these here are supposed to be, well, that's true. <laughs> I mean, I go through a dive suit every two years, actually, ish, in that area. Or like you, yours is a shred. <laughs> that's what I, I look like uh, Fred Flintstone when he gets, when he breaks the car. I swear to God, I don't know how you do it. I would freeze my butt off in that in that what you, what you call a wetsuit. Hell, I can I've wear a tongue. It's going to be a collector's item. There's there's going to be some some place some uh, dive dive bar. They're they're going to have you know there's Jacques Cousteau's this, and then then way in the corner, right there in the bathroom, that you can wipe your hands on is going to be my wetsuit. <laughs> that I wore for gosh, what's that? 13 years now. Uh, and the way I'm getting away with it now is I, I'm only wearing the wetsuit maybe twice a year. I'm getting two, but it's true. Uh, uh, these ultra flex wetsuits, 
you're yeah you push 200 dives is pushing it 100 probably pretty reasonable but if you're doing any sort of depth or cycles uh they just break down between pulling them on stretching them going to depth uh, the bubbles start to break and they yeah so but you're saying that this uh th- that these recycled ones are supposed to be pretty good well yeah my understanding these are supposed to be really good one item they did not have and i find disadvantageous remember how you got the rubber knee pads uh-huh you know where they always leak at first is that seam right at the top because when you yeah. pull them on it will break that bond yeah. i mean i've had to repair mine both all the time because oh, that's where yeah. they go bad and of course in the armpit that's where the mm-hmm. other seam goes bad you never seem to have the body around the body itself my zippers have always been great excuse me great mm-hmm. yeah the, the the ones that i've really kind of done in is around the neck and it's usually when we're diving in that 80 90 degrees in a boat and you're just like ah, oh, i gotta get some water in here and i know that sometimes because if you when you pull on it it's all sucked into your skin and uh I, that's where i've kind of destroyed that there around the neck yes, unzip it. come on unzip it a little yeah. bit first yeah okay i know we're sort of talking about the equipment but by the same token if there's newbies out there you don't always got to buy new stuff first no you know save your money for a trip yeah yeah and there, there's creative ways to to get that gear you know make make sure you want to do it and that you're enjoying it yeah um, so let's see what's the next one we've got there. So we covered Dima, medieval uh, soldier. The so that uh, the medieval soldier found with a sword. This one I just I I just discovered that one earlier this week. Let's see if I can get to that. Uh, let's see, not that one, not that one. Wow, everything's got every every website now insists on having some sort of video crap running. Uh, here we go. This one's from LiveScience.com. Medieval soldier found with a sword knives at the bottom of a Lithuanian lake. Uh, the remains were discovered with weapons nearby more than 500 years ago. A medieval soldier's dead body settled in the bottom of a Lithuanian lake for centuries. It laid hidden beneath the mud. Now those remains have been finally found. Skeleton was discovered during an underwater inspection of the old, was it Dubingai Bridge? D-U-B-I-N-G-I-A-I. Bridge in Ethern, Lithuania's Lake Esvesia. Uh, though the skeleton lay under land of sand and silt, the scene was not a burial, said archaeologist Ellen P., a researcher at the university with a name I can't pronounce in Lithuania, according to the Baltic News Service, rather water currents likely deposited sediment that covered the remains over time. Scientists with a facility of medicine at that same university examined the body and reported the person was a male and that he had died in the 16th century, though they don't yet know why he died. According to BNS, the weapons and other items recovered from the lake bottom near the body hinted that the man's military status human burials are linked to warfare previously been excavated across the region but this is the first time the medieval soldier had been discovered underwater in lithuania 
Uh, that particular bridge was one of the longest wooden bridges still in use in Lithuania and was built in 1934. It is deteriorating beams and is currently being replaced with metal poles. Representatives of tech infrastructure, the company supervising repair project under the Lithuanian Ministry of Transportation and Communication, said in a statement. Archaeologists collaborated with amateur divers to perform the survey. Divers located remains at a depth of 30 feet, 9 meters, while inspecting the wooden bridge's support system, according to a statement. Previous survey done in 1998 revealed that another bridge once stood at the same place during the 6th and 7th century, around the time that this medieval soldier died. For now, we assume that those discovered humans' remains could be linked to the former bridge leading to the castle, which was situated the hilltop along the shore of the Ejva Lake. Finding the soldiers' remains is a big surprise, but equally astonishing was the remarkable preservation of the skeleton artifacts. Diver recovered a pair of leather boots with spurs, a leather belt with a buckle, an iron sword, and two knives with wooden handles. A team of archaeologists, anthropologists, historians at the National Museum of Lithuania are now walking to conserve, are working to conserve and interpret the objects. Discovery and data are really fresh. They still need to be carefully analyzed. We hope they tell a story in a soldier at least a year. And I hope that they don't work in the food industry because I don't trust their definition of fresh. <laughs> that, that photo, the water looked pretty clear there. As long as that's. Did you see the second picture I posted? Uh, let me take a look. No, I, I don't think I have. Looked a little dark. Oh, my internet's running slow. That is cool, though. Oh, that is a little dark in that one. Uh, yes, it is. Uh, so that's probably part of it. They uh, It's probably done in the dark with a lot of lights and then you know, a little bit of photo enhancing and color correction. Yeah, that's uh, pretty but cool. Even, but, but even so, that's still they still have some decent vis. Yeah, I'm trying to figure what is, if you're looking at the sword tip off to the right, what is that object? The picture uh, I posted, you see it? I, I know. Yeah, is it could that have been like say there was a wooden post there and say that the the edge of that would have been the bottom. So everything above the bottom had kind of corroded and worn away, but it was kind of protected in the sand. Is that possible? I I don't know. I'm looking at I enhanced it real quick just to eyeball. Now there does look to like there's a chip on the side. So if yes, that's the case, could that be could that be a uh, ceramic? I was wondering about that. Interesting. Yeah. I am surprised that blade is not more corroded, though. Yes. Yes. That's cool, though. I mean, that'd be awesome. Could you imagine? Probably be down there. Oh, yes. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that the bridges that we we had around, if there were if there were uh, bodies there, we'd have probably spotted them by now. Well, we picked up a few of those, but I did find out yeah. at that time a Viking sword. Yeah, you have. You have found a sword. Uh, so that was a nice find for them. Uh, oh, yeah. Let's see. A shipwreck exposed by erosion on the Florida coast. Let's see what that one was about. Uh, this one is uh, from the Smithsonian Magazine. They said the wreck could be 200 years old. And I thought what was interesting was that photo. So I couldn't tell had they evacuated the sand, but we don't usually, normally we just see them as like rib wrecks where 
it's the wreck's been flayed open and it's just some boards. But this seems to have a little bit of depth to it. Erosion of Florida Beach had revealed a shipwreck that archaeologists say may be as much as 200 years old. As Jessica Clark reports for the First Coast News, local Mark uh, Donahue, or O'Donohue, was walking the Crescent Beach at St. John's County on Saturday, as he does almost every day when he saw some timbers and a metal spike sticking through the sand. O'Donohue reached out to the St. Augustine Lighthouse Archaeological Maria, Maritime Program, or LAMP, which sent researchers to investigate after assessing the site. The team determined they'd stumbled onto the wreckage of a vessel that likely ran around Florida's northeast coast during the 19th century when Crescent Beach looked decidedly different. The sand dune wasn't here when the ship wrecked. We know topography in the landscape of the coast changes a lot. He speculated a storm eventually pushed a wreck far up the beach where the sand formed around it. Based on the wooden timbers and iron fasteners, Mead tells Ryan Nelson of Auction News Jacks that the vessel is not likely was most likely a merchant ship. It was probably a cargo ship carrying goods around the 1800s. Think of it kind of like a Walmart semi-truck. The ship was handing a bunch of, could be hardware, flour, or could be all different types of commodities. Mead posts, posits that whoever operated the ship spoke English as various parts of the vessels were cut in feet and inches. The Kielsen, for example, is 12 inches across, he explained to Auction Jack News. So that tells us that it's more likely an American ship, a Canadian ship, or a British ship. As waves rolled onto the beach at the high tide on Saturday, more sections of the ship became visible. A substantial part of the structure is still beneath what we can see. Uh, Budsberg outlined several possible scenarios that could have brought the ship to the spot where it sat for centuries. It might have been at the end of its life, and they ran up the beach and called it a day, he says, or it's possible it wrecked further out to sea. A portion of the ship made it to the beach. The archaeologists also found burn marks in some of the ship's timbers. My gut is telling me the burning happened after the ship was wrecked. Someone very well could have burned it for salvage purposes because then you'd shift through the ashes to pull out metal spikes and sell for crap. scrap. Uh, writing on the LAMP Facebook page, researchers say they will continue to study the timbers, both outside and in the lab, to seek more information on the wood's age and origin. Many beachgoers gathered to see archaeologists studying the wreck. We saw all the activity and asked, what's going on? Uh, observer Lisa Snyder said, uh, we got to talk to some of the archaeologists. It's just fascinating. Discovery also has a darker side reflects the growing problem of beach erosion, natural phenomena exasperated by climate change. In the paper published earlier here by Nature, they point out that almost half uh, will be vanished by the end of the century. So they go on and on and stuff like that. What I liked about that is, you know, look at the bluff to the left of the guy is digging. Mm-hmm. They said that spot was that normally is under 10 foot of sand over the last 20 years. All of that used to be beach. So if that yep. was under 10 foot of sand years ago, that is a hell of a lot of erosion. Yes. Um, yeah, because when you look at that building they've got there, you can tell that there's fairly recent erosion. Oh, yeah. Um, at least six or eight feet there. And they wouldn't have built them that close. They'd have built them with a good view and then they you know people want to walk out there they want to saunter down to the beach get to the waterfront uh, and this is more of like walk out boom you're down into this you know low water mark or, or high water yeah. mark 
And yeah, so that wouldn't have been where they'd have desired to build that. No, I think the key item, like you said, is you look at those buildings and you look at the bluff, that ain't the way it was when they built them. No, no. Well, in fact, you can even see that uh, if you look at behind the, the guy in the red shirt, uh, they've got some stairs. The stairs and those yep. stairs would have mapped the contour of the beach. They, you know, yes. they, they didn't build them 15 feet in the air. Uh, that was just so that somebody walking didn't have to walk through the sand dunes or erode the sand dunes. So, yeah, they've had quite a bit. And this is recent. This is, I would say, just two or three years, if not sooner. So a little bit of erosion going on there in that particular part of Florida. Uh, and then back here, a little closer to home to us in Michigan, we have Ross Richardson has another discovery under his belt. Uh, they, he, there's some a report of the 1885 shipwreck Jarvis Lord discovered and identified Lake Michigan. Uh, the Jarvis Lord was a freighter and had been mysterious for 135 years until uh, shipwreck hunter Ross Richardson found her in northern Lake Michigan. Um, uh, there's uh, probably a dozen shipwrecks that haven't been discovered along the Manitoulo Passage, said Ross Richardson, a shipwreck hunter and author who operates a website, michiganmysteries.com. I would like to find his many along there as I can. The Manitoba, Manitoba Passage is Lake Michigan's waterway that separates Michigan mainland from North and South Manitoba, Manitoba Islands. Uh, and I'm adding an L in there. Man, Manitoba Island. It's one of those things as a Michigan person, you don't, you don't ever read it, you just say it. Uh, the passage used to be a pinch point for larger vessels traveling north on Lake Michigan, ship captains would choose to travel through the passage because it cut time off the routes of the Strait of Mackinac. It used to be quite congested area. That's why the graveyard for so many lost vessels. Richardson, who makes his home in Lake Ann, Michigan, has discovered more than a dozen Lake Michigan shipwrecks, including his 2010 find, the elusive and highly coveted Westmoreland steamer, a vessel found near South Manitoba Island uh, in the winter storm, December. 1854. Uh, that's not when he found it. That's when it went down. In 2018, Richardson also identified the W.C. Kimball schooner, which sank near the Manitoba Islands in 1891. During the spring and summer and fall months each year, uh, he makes uh, the short 25-minute trek northwest of Lake Ann to Glen Arbor, Michigan. Or Glen Arbor, Michigan, where he launches his boat and spends hours in the passage using a side-scan sonar to comb the lake bottoms with hopes of solving some of shipwreck mysteries. One shipwreck in particular, which history, histori uh, history says sank somewhere between Sleeping Bear Point and the other, and the Manitoba Islands has alluded to shipwreck hunters for more than a century, the 193 foot freighter named Jarvis Lord. It's a big wooden vessel. The Lord is actually the predecessor to the Edmunds Fitzgerald. On August 17, 1885, the Jarvis Lord was making its way through the passage, carrying a load of iron ore when it mysteriously sprung a leak and started taking on water. Captain Richard Neville ordered the steam-powered pumps to start, but the pumps weren't able to keep up with the rising water. With a heavy load of iron ore, Jarvis Lord was sinking fast, so Captain Neville ordered all crew members to lifeboats. 
The lifeboats contained all 20 crew members, had to row seven miles with everybody found safety at Glen Haven. Meanwhile, the Jarvis Lord disappeared from the service, surface and made its way to Lake Bottoms. I spent a considerable amount of time trying to find the Jarvis Lord, said Richardson. It's not where many reports said it's supposed to be. After countless hours and multiple unsuccessful attempts over the years, Richardson's luck seemed to take a turn on May 31st, 2019. I was in the passage running some lanes slowly scanning the bottom when an unusually large or unusual image suddenly appeared on my sonar. I knew it was big, but initially couldn't make out what it was. I thought, could this be the Jarvis Lord? Richards, Richardson says he recorded the coordinates of location of the lake so he could easily venture back out there again to continue investigating. As spring gave way to summer 2019, Richardson had hoped he'd get a technical driver down to Lake Bottom, get some eyes on the object, but personal schedules combined with his ongoing search for the W.C. Kimball wouldn't allow for it. He had to go long winter months knowing they'd have to wait to at least the following spring to learn anything more. In November 2019, Richardson reached out to 13 on your side, revealing that he may have found the Jarvis Lord, and he invited us to join him the following spring to document an expedition with he and his crew. On June 24, 2020, he assembled his crew for the expedition following shipwreck hunters Cal Cothraid and Steve Weimer. The second traveled from Milwaukee, Wisconsin to Glen Arbor and piled their gear in Richardson's boat. I'm excited to see what it is, said Wimmer, as excited mixed gas technical diver who had dove and documented several shipwrecks, have been looking at the pictures and thinking about it for six months. And they've got, we're not going to go and read this whole article. Uh, cause they're going on and on and on. Uh, so you know, we'll have links in the show notes. Put uh, some pictures in there. But, yep. Now she's at what? 240 feet. Yeah. So that's not something looking at some of the photos. Like you look at where the ship's wheel is. That just kind of there off on its own. I think perspective on that one, because the top one shows uh, supposed to be the same wheel as I get, but it doesn't look like the same wheel, even though it was identified as on the shipwreck. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, I see the one you're talking about. That's a different that's a different one. It looks like, but it was on the same reference as the Jarvis. So I didn't know if that was supposed to be the same from a different angle or not. Hmm. Yeah, we'll have to we'll have to contact Rossi. Maybe we'll have him back on the show. We've had him on before. Uh, every once in a while on Facebook, I'll give him a ribbing when we see him uh, on one of the Discovery Channel shows. He's he's been shown a few times. Well, go up to uh, Shipwreck Festival. He'll be there. A festival? Who has a festival anymore? Well, not since last year. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah. actually early. Yeah, if you, there, I think that was, that was probably one of the last things we did before the, the lockup. Yeah. So, but congratulations, Ross. And, and it goes to show if you're not looking, you're not going to find it. Yeah, he's been looking. He's putting the time in. He's mowing the lawn. He's scanning, being methodical about it. And uh, he comes back and he looks. Yeah. Uh, I'll give you another like, picture, by the way, if you want to take a look. This is yeah one of the pictures he did post. Coming up at you now, bingo. 
Say bow and foremast of the Jarvis Lord. So it's a, it was a foremasted. Well, I'm, no, the bow and foremast. Oh, the, the fo foremast. F F O R E. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That um, the Lord Stern hit the bottom of such force that dug like a giant spoon, splitting the hull in two, sharing off most of the vessel's transom. Silt and sand scooped out of uh, scooped were scooped into what remained of the engine room. Half cabins, pilot house were much more lightly constructed that the Lord's strong white oak hull and were ripped off at the surface by the heavy, as a heavy hull sank out of uh, out from under them. It rests in 220 feet of water, two and a half miles west of Pyramid Point. Her bow is pointing to the southeast, aiming toward the nearby shoreline that she was attempting to reach. That painting there is, is interesting. You know, is, is that artistic license or is that how the crew described it going down? I don't see which painting. Is that something I posted or what? Oh, uh, that's that at one. the. Yeah, that's got to be somebody's interpretation. Yeah. Well, that's because that's how the Titanic went down. That's how this one must have. Yeah. Yeah, because that's. It's, the last pictures show a lot more, you know, the darkness, how deep it is, and what it really does look like. Interesting. Yeah. Like you said, he put the time in. Yeah, he, he, he earned it. He, he went out and he looked for it and he found it. And I agree with his, I mean, looking just from the few photos we're seeing, that, that certainly appears to be the same vessel. Excellent. Well, good job there. And that should do it for Scuba the News for this week. Man, the time just flew by. It just goes by. And it is, it's, well, it's, I think from ad lib sometime, and as I, we, I got carried away on the equipment. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we, we need to do, uh, it's, it's still on my list. We've got to do just some special single topic episodes, so we'll get some of those done. Uh, anybody getting any diving in? Boy, it has not been really that type of weather. We're, we're in that transition period of the season. Uh, I know, and with the COVID, we normally would have a turkey dive schedule, but that's not happening. Up. Yeah. Uh, when was the last time we didn't do a turkey dive? We didn't do one last year. Did we not do one last we year? We did not have the interest. Wow. Seemed like we dove that weekend, though. Oh, yeah, we did, but not the river. Okay. Yeah, we did do it. Matter of fact, we dove Niles, as I recollect. Yeah. Yeah, it seemed like, yeah, I, I remember diving, but, yeah, you're right. It wasn't the traditional turkey dive. It It's it's going to be a challenge, you know. We've got to, to figure out some way you replenish the membership with some younger members. Now, I say that, you, we, we, have, we have some really hardcore younger divers too just must not wanted to uh dive that weekend well this yeah, I miss is a lousy lousy oh, year is, a lot of things yeah I'm, I'm thinking john uh you know we, we've only dove with him and then uh gosh he's i I've, all i think of these guys is that is they're just they're big buff guys who are great at moving gear <laughs> but uh you you know the ones who typically Hang, hang that uh, dive with us there in Niles. 
Well, Kevin and Amy have got a hell of a lot of diving in. Oh gosh. Their honeymoon yeah. vacation. They they oh, were yeah. diving fools. Yeah. Can now, you imagine if it hadn't hadn't been a bad year, how many dives they'd have gotten in? Oh, tons and tons. And as it was, they've got the last couple in on the big lake. Just a couple of months, well, a couple of weeks ago. Yep. Last yep. times of the season, they were diving out there when we were not. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you have to be prepared. You have to have your gear ready. And you have to look and say, you know what? If I can right. go diving, I'm going to. And that's what Straight they did. There and hot. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I may just have to have my gear service because it's like I'm I'm not. It's getting to be farther and farther from getting a dive in. So this kind of crappiness, you know, I, I imagine you know we're as a dive club we're not going to have a our normal New Year's dive, are we? Hey, Anybody well, do any talking Larry, about that? Larry's still game, and I'm game, but. Uh... We don't have the toy box to play with sometime now. I don't think we're going to have any ice by, by December or late December. And if we did, it's going to be skim ice. We're not going to have anything solid enough to be diving with. I, I think I'm going to give up on predicting ice because <laughs> I, I, I don't know if I've gotten it right yet. I can, get, I can get it right if the ice is already there and I go out and look at it. That's about as accurate. Being a couple months out, it's so oh. hard to predict. Yeah, after we dive it, and then we say, "Yeah, we figured it. We had good today." <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, do you have a dive safety story that you want to? Well, let's talk cover? today about self-aware and prepared. Although symptoms after diving are not always due to DCS, it behooves divers who experience post-dive symptoms to contact Dan and seek medical attention promptly. Avoiding denial can greatly improve outcomes. In this case, let's talk about the diver. The diver was a 45-year-old male dive instructor with approximately 300 lifetime dives. He denied taking any medication and reported no history of medical conditions. Now the dive. The diver was teaching advanced open water course at a local lake popular with divers. Water temperature ranged from... 78 to 92 degrees Fahrenheit. He was accompanied by his wife, who was assisting the class as a dive master for a series of five dives over the weekend. The completed dives on three, or completed three dives on a Saturday with a long interval between the dives, followed by 16 and a half hour surface interval before the first dive the last day of the week, the Sunday. The first dive was 34 minutes long, depth. 53 feet. Then they did a second one to meet the depth requirement for the course of a maximum of 98 feet. After a 90-minute surface interval, began the second dive of the day, which was focused on surf, uh, search and recovery. It was a 48-minute dive to an average depth of 50, with a maximum depth of 63 feet. All the dives were considered to be non-stressful, minimal exertion, he was just following monitoring students. The dives were within recreational limits. Dive computer was in a conservative setting. Fastest ascent was less than 29 feet per minute. After the fifth and final dive, packing up his gear, experienced aches and pains in his right shoulder, numbness in his leg, had difficulty walking. 
wasn't sure what was going on, so he pulled the vehicle over, set up his Dan oxygen unit, and began breathing straight O2. They also set up the non-rebreather mask in case he lost consciousness. So he's breathing straight O2. Dan, uh, his wife called Dan. Dan said, you should get to the emergency ER, so that's what he did. The symptoms subsided 45 minutes after breathing pure oxygen and before he reached the hospital. They did admit him to check out if he had any residual issues. They again put him on uh, oxygen, 15 liters a minute. And Dan, the doctor actually contacted Dan again, provided information on this patient, and uh, they gave him an, a location for a hyperbaric chamber. He went uh, underwent multiple tests, including EKG, MRI, CAT scan, chest x-rays, all were unremarkable. In total, the diver breathed 100% oxygen for about five hours during testing. They ultimately decided the case may have been a case of decompression sickness that resolved before he was at the hospital. The recommended treatment would have been oxygen therapy in a hyperbaric situation. But since the extensive testing indicated he did not have any issues at the time, nor had any residual, uh, they decided no hyperbaric treatment was necessary. The key item is it showed that they paid attention to the symptoms, had equipment already on hand, and started using O2 as a precautionary, which was the smart item to do. He did not neglect the system. He did not attribute them to items such as heavy lifting, tight wetsuit, overexertion. He was conservative in his actions and followed through with them. Uh, the incident conserved your mind divers of the importance of self-awareness, having an action plan for an, a potential emergency. It's crucial to be mindful when uh, considering symptoms to have an immediate oxygen supply available and always seek professional medical attention when deemed necessary. Self-aware and prepared. Yeah. And being prepared could be what helped them not need the chamber yes. ride. You got him yeah. on oxygen as quick as possible, called Dan, got the proper advice. Yeah. When in doubt, you know, that's the key item. I mean, how often, though, have we heard somebody say, well, my, I got a little chest discomfort. And if it resolves when you unbutton the BC, then probably the tarin vest was too tight. Or you've got your, you know, you've got a 200-pound body and a 160-pound wetsuit. <laughs> and, and you unzip that top and you go, God, I can breathe again. This they a do have a suit or a girdle? Yeah, they do shrink over the cold season. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The scientific fact. Yeah. And it is amazing how a constrictive wetsuit can really uh, tire you out. Yeah. It's not comfortable and, you know, leads to other potential issues. Yeah. Well, very good. Well, we are getting towards the end. Is there anything you want to plug before we get on out of here? 
actually, we don't really have too much of blood because not too much is happening. I know they're no. putting us back on quarantine basically for another three weeks. Yeah. So yeah, I, yeah, I, I listened to, to the seen. yeah, I was listening to the <coughs> county commissioners meeting, and they had the uh, uh, head of the Lakeland Health System and a couple other uh, people as well talking about the conditions. And it was, I thought it was very well done. Uh, the information they provided and it, and it made it kind of clear what their position was and their position. You have to remember when you listen to them talk is that of the healthcare system. And a lot of it, it's on, you know, they, they need to stay profitable. They need to stay organized in their trying to be a few steps ahead. Uh, because the, you, know, you look at some reports online and a lot of it is assumptions just because somebody made a website with some charts and graphs and data pulled from a location doesn't mean what that's what's going on. And I've seen many charts that have shown for the last three weeks that the hospital has been at a hundred percent capacity for COVID patients. And I know people who work there, so that's not necessarily true. And in the meeting, they pretty much admitted that they could have, they have room for double the amount of COVID. I mean, they're just, just COVID patients, not talking regular patients. They could double the number of COVID patients the hospital could take, but they don't want to be in that situation. <coughs> and they're also saying that that just having the beds for it isn't as tough as staffing it. As I said, that's kind of been the, the challenge now. And we're even seeing that you know, as a, uh, with, the, with the schools, because uh, the high schools, uh, uh, they're doing uh, distance learning, but the elementary and the middle schools, um, which was also covered in this report, they were saying that the students have a less likely chance of contacting COVID at school than they did at home. And this is from the numbers they've got in the county. They, they said the students aren't even when it does get into the school, it didn't originate the school. It's not being passed at the school, but just some, just some good numbers, some good perspective in, in what they were doing. Um, and it just appears that everybody's tired. I mean, that's what I, I call this, you know, the seasonal changes, you know, internal heating systems, blowers, everything, uh, changing how the virus moves. And then I think people are just, I don't, I don't want to say the world lazy, but, uh, I think they've had enough and uh, the virus doesn't care if you've had enough or not. Well, I am still wearing my mask and uh, I am minimizing my frequency of getting around anybody because my wife doesn't go out, daughter doesn't go out. So I try to be extremely cautious and, you know, protective. Yeah. I mean, it's, and, and that's kind of been my position on something like this here. They they had a nice chart showing that if you were between zero and 40 years of age, you had almost a 0% chance of uh, dying from COVID in Berrien County. Well, I got a, a nephew who just got diagnosed with it. He's at college. Uh-huh. And he seems to be doing very well. But again, yeah. young and healthy under you know early early 20s mm -hmm. well like at at my work yeah i'm in i'm in it and the department is probably made up of a, somewhere around 30 people um in in our home office 
there have been 12 cases just in IT. So that's more than a third of the department has ended up with COVID. Well, I don't need it. Thank you very much. Yeah, that that's my my thought as well. I was looking so. at some of the results of the uh, testing of the vaccines. All I know is I wouldn't want to be the one doing the one and getting the saline solution. I know. Those are the ones who have, you know, they say, oh, uh, this many people in the uh, tests had extreme conditions, but they were all people on the placebo. <laughs> it's like, well, of course. You're not, not, it's not helping you. Yeah, I mean, because if you think you're you're doing something like that, I mean, I understand. I'm glad people are volunteering, but damn. Yeah. If I get the shot, I want to know it's going to work, and I don't want water. Yeah. Gosh, there, there's it there's a. Like, uh, it looks like we're going to get one pretty soon. That's the nice part. Yeah. Well, there's there's three or four that are probably all going to be available about the same time. They're all similar. Um. But it's not over till the fat lady sings and the FDA signs off on it. So, and it also looks like let's see what it says three years down the road of people who had the shot. Oh yeah, yeah, because this this was a R the M RNA or I'm mixing up the acronyms, but it's programming your body to fight something that it might not have had yet. So we don't have a long history of those, that type of vaccine, knowing what yeah. it does, how it works. So I'll, I'll be a, a fairly early adopter. I am with, with most of the vaccines, but I may not be week one. <laughs> I want to. Yeah, give it a while. Yeah, yeah. I'm, so we'll, we'll just have to see what this new year brings. But it's, uh, Well, the one I heard that those who got it, or meaning the testing phase one, it, it gives you a knot in the arm and it hurts. Mm -hmm. And the second part is you do wind up with flu symptoms that people are not comfortable with, but not yeah. failed symptoms. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, your, your body is, and they're not looking forward to, you got to get a booster and it's like, well, damn, I didn't enjoy the last one. I don't think I'm going to get the booster. Well, that's going to be an interesting part. Yeah. Yeah, some of them say they don't need it. Some do. Uh, I and I think part of that has to be the you know because normally this would be something with a longer study, you could run parallel to figure out do I need a booster, not need a booster, but you know if, with an accelerated time frame for coming up with this, they may have may taken a more conservative approach and said hey, we're just going to build a booster into this program and see how that goes and what the results are so yeah i'm I'm sure everybody's gonna be bombarded with a lot of information here in the next two or three weeks so yeah I'm, well, I'm i still for... hear it'll be the meds doctors and nurses get it first which makes sense to me yeah. they're the ones right in the middle of it and then it said the older people yeah well, that have issues yeah yeah and then uh, one thing i hate to even mention it because i don't know enough about it but uh there was one group that was saying that it doesn't actually prevent you from getting it it just teaches your body what to do when it does get it so what they're concerned with is that certain populations 
that it could create a larger pool of people who are asysmatic uh, because their body's going to fight it. So they're going to get it and they could still pass it on. Uh, So, I I mean, that's some of the details that we'll we'll have to find as as it comes through. So, well, are you ready? Yes, sir. Ever ready. Okay. A waiter gives a gentleman a cup of coffee. The gentleman takes the the sip and spits it out. He turns to the waiter and says, waiter, this coffee tastes like mud. The waiter looks around surprised, turns to the gentleman and says, but sir, it's fresh ground. Okay, that's pretty good. (laughs) Only because Uh, I drink that stuff. Yes. Oh, you hate it when the filter bends over and you don't realize that you drink it. And it's like, what the hell is all that gritty stuff? Uh, Yeah. Uh, That's fiber. Yeah. 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 You you get that. uh, Yeah. It's it's kind of interesting in all the years I've been drinking coffee, how many different ways there are to make it. Um, You know, for a while there, we were doing the K cups, but it just gets so expensive and you're changing the. Because sometimes you want a mug, and if you do a K cup and you hit the mug, all you're doing is diluting a cup's worth of coffee to fill a mug with it. So yeah, I've kind of gone back to the. I'm know, a, I, I put so much it. cream or sugar or milk in mine <laughs> that it's half and half. But uh, I don't know how people drink coffee black. I just I just don't. I I used but, to when I was really uh, I say young. You know, I, uh, 16 to 20, I, I drank black coffee. Uh, but then go ahead. I'm sorry. Then, then one day I had uh coffee with, with real creamer. I'm like, wow, where's this been all my life? (laughs) I have a coffee story in the army. I got one of my, uh, when I got, uh, assigned as an instructor, at the base I went in and I'm a newbie guy there new instructor and first sergeant in charge of the the department new guy take care of the coffee pot so go ahead and sign it out make coffee and you know it's those big urns you know so not knowing any better I emptied the stuff out then I cleaned it with spick and spick (laughs) (laughs) okay and then I made a cup of you know a pot of coffee and the the good thing about that is that is the last time they ever had me touch that coffee pot. <laughs> you broke its will. God, did I? It's like, what did you use? Spick and span. No, no. You know, because it must have had that glue covering on the inside on purpose. But uh, <laughs> that first pot I made, I got really some bad reviews, to say the least. You didn't get the five-star rating that you were hoping for. I never had to. In fact, I was banned from touching that coffee pot. <laughs> so it's not all bad. Yeah. Kind of uh, like me, me and laundry. So. Oh, you had a laundry story? <laughs> well, just in general, I'm, I'm terrible at laundry. Uh, you know, things come out different colors than what they went in. and. Yeah, I've been taught, you know, whites are over here. This is over here, and don't touch my crap. Yeah. <laughs> and 
that's in a separate, I'll wash it myself. And then you say, well, and these you got to put in this little net bag. And it's like, uh, okay, that goes in that one because I'm not touching it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just cut my, I, at least I'm getting to the point now that I look at a sweatshirt and I got stains on it. So I'll use stain remover. Yeah. That, that's about the, the extent of my knowledge of, yeah. of it. So, you yeah. know, I'll, I'll do loads of towels. And I'll say, yeah, yeah. we got some towels. Go. I'll do that. You know, I can. Yeah. I can like pretty much my clothes are real easy. It's everybody else's. It's like, what that has, what that. Yeah. 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 Blue. How, how bad can you go with blue jeans, t-shirts and socks? Yeah, yeah. Usually, usually pretty good. Yeah. And the first time you screw it up and the, then from that point on, they just keep looking better and better. Uh, so, so on that note, go out there and get wet. Yeah. Stay safe. My screensaver just popped on. Get- Actually, we had some diehards just stuck in here. Damn. Oh, wow. Hardcore. Dave, Derek, and Eric are really diehards. That are the masochist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or or shut-ins. Or shut-ins, yeah. It's like being in solitary. I'll take anything. I'll take anything. <laughs> yeah. Well, my internet's so bad out here. I, I we haven't gone through all the uh, Netflix stuff, but I'm sure there's a bunch of people who've probably watched everything on Netflix, Hulu, and Disney Plus, uh, two or three are times. Watching, are you watching Mandalorian? Oh yes, yes, that I, I am too. I I've I've got that. It comes with the Verizon, and uh, you know, it's in the Star Wars universe. It's a Western. What's not the love? Yes. Yeah. I, and it's, you know, people get so upset about it. And so, you know, it's like, it's fine. It's upset okay. About it. uh, people who don't have something really to get upset about. <laughs> I mean, the only thing my, my daughter didn't like the other, we watch it together. It's a bonding thing is uh, last week, week four last was the spider one. She hates spiders. Oh yeah, scared him. Yeah, I, so I she wasn't crazy about that one. No, no, that that one almost needed a disclaimer at the beginning <laughs> because uh, that yeah that would I could see people who did not like spiders finding that one a little intense. Uh, I still couldn't. I mean, he had so many holes in that when he took off again. It's like, come on, well, that's what that's what I was thinking about. Much. Yeah. Well, he yeah, said I, the only thing they could get is the cockpit was the only thing that's pressurized. Well, and and it's like they, it's like the at one point I'm like, well, this is completely unbelievable because I expected him just to fly off in space. I'm thinking, how do you go into space and you, you when you're that ventilated? I didn't know that Yoda ate frog egg, so he's a little bitch, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, he's uh, and and there, there's a whole discussion on that. Uh, and I can't tell if the people are serious or not, but they were talking about that he's committing genocide, you know, wiping out a species. I'm like, 
you know, he's a toddler. <laughs> you know, you can't hold the toddler responsible. He's hungry. Yeah. So well, we're losing people. That must time mean it's it's time to go, huh? <laughs> time to go. Yep. All right. Well, until next week, if not before.